0: Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Ruy. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of The Europhile. Today, we will discuss the recent reforms of the EU's fiscal rules, also known as the Stability and Growth Pact, And we will reflect on where the EU stands as it heads into 2024. And finally, we will turn to my conversation with Jim Townsend, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO Policy and current Adjunct Senior Fellow in the Transatlantic Security Program with our arch rival, the Center for a New American Security. And also, uh, I should say that we'll be joined by a special guest host. Our producer, Otto Svensson, uh, is a research associate with the Europe-Russia-Eurasia program here at CSAS, and he is sitting in for dine Rue, who is enjoying her much-deserved European vacation and is completely unplugged for the next next few weeks. We hope you enjoy the show. So, Otto, you are coming to us actually from Copenhagen, which had a lot of dramatic news on December 31st. Can you tell us what happened?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is my annual trip back home. You know, live and I'm based in DC where I work for you at, at CSAS. And home for the holidays, uh, you know, these trips are usually pretty uneventful. You spend time with family and friends, you eat all the foods you you're used to eating from from when you grew up. This time was was much more dramatic than what I'm used to, um, because on New Year's Eve, every Dane who was, you know, uh plugged into their TV on New Year's Eve, as we all are. Listening to the Queen's speech at 6 PM got to witness our monarch abdicate the throne, which was just a complete shocker and completely unexpected to, to every Dane, uh, who was watching. Just to put it in context, you know, no Danish monarch has abdicated the throne since 1146. And our Queen, Queen Margrethe is the longest reigning monarch in Europe after the death of Queen Elizabeth. So it was a complete shocker, and I'm by no means a monarchist. I'm not a royalist. You know, I don't have a particularly close relationship with the royal family. But it was it was pretty emotional. I was pretty surprised. You know, sitting there with my my family, and my parents, uh, we all got very emotional um, at this. You know, at the application of this person who has no more than a than a symbolic figure in Danish society. So it was weird. It was strange.
0: Now, as I understand it, every year at six p.m on new year 's Eve, the Queen addresses the country, and this is something everybody watches usually right and and normally she doesn 't say very much or wh- wh- walk me through the bizarre Scandinavian tradition that you have and I can make fun of of Danes because my wife is Swedish, and they have this bizarre tradition that every uh, Christmas Eve they sit down and they watch uh, old Donald Duck cartoons. Uh, from from way back in the 1950s, and they watch like the same one every time. So there's a lot of bizarre Scandinavian traditions, but maybe walk me through through this one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I would have it no other way than than you teasing me for being Danish and me teasing uh, your wife for being Swedish. Basically, on New Year's Eve, whether you're celebrating with friends or family, you get together at 6 p.m. for a glass of champagne and you watch the the Queen's speech. You know, her annual address to the nation. And usually these speeches are pretty boring. They're pretty bland. She usually mentions the same things that she's mentioned for the past, you know, 50-some years. She thanks, you know, the armed forces and Danish uh, troops that are deployed around the world. She makes reference to the Faroe Islands and the Greenland, part of the Kingdom of Denmark, and otherwise just you know blurts out a bunch of platitudes about the year that's passed. You know, last year talked a lot about Ukraine. This year she talked a lot about uh, the conflict in in Gaza and then the last 2 minutes of a speech she mentioned an extensive back surgery that she'd gone through in the past year and how this was the time to hand over the reins to a younger generation her son crown prince frederick who will now take over and it was just a complete you know break with with what we were used to and it
0: was it was quite bizarre well, hopefully Denmark is sort of getting over this now, my understanding is that this is really just a ceremonial position uh and her duties are sort of much like in 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 the u k doesn't have sort of much actual responsibilities is that right
1: absolutely not constitutional monarchy, her position is entirely symbolic, and honestly, you know from my from my point of view, I'm happy that she brings in some some tourist dollars every year from from visiting. Uh, foreigners, Americans, uh, Americans who come, and especially Americans who come and, and see the castle
0: and and who bring in
1: some some dough for for the Danish coffers.
0: Well, at least she did this right before uh, New Year, so you can all drink away your sorrows and and toast the queen on what has been a, a very long career. Hopefully, she can enjoy her retirement. But maybe we'll turn to one of the the big, I think, maybe under the radar achievements of the EU uh, as it came down to the wire before Christmas was an agreement on the stability and growth pact. And the stability and growth pact is a very wonky econ agreement. But actually has, I think, tremendous implications for Europe overall. And for Americans listening to this that are obsessed with European defense spending, rightly so, and want Europeans to increase their defense spending, I think this is probably one of the most critical policy issues in Europe because what the stability and growth pact does – is basically determines how countries can spend. And the premise behind it is that if you're going to all get a, the same currency, you now some countries don't, Denmark, for instance, Sweden, for instance, but if those that are belonging to the euro need to sort of operate according to certain fiscal rules. Now, if you think about American states, American states aren't allowed to operate budget deficits. They have to have a, a balanced budget every year, and the federal government is the one that can, can take on debt. And then uh, if there's a recession, sort of counter that. So the Stability and Growth Pact is to kind of limit the excesses of certain countries, and it has utterly failed, I think, over over its tenure. Numerous countries in Southern Europe in particular, when faced with major economic crises after 2008 in particular, saw their uh, debt uh, ratios uh, explode. Italy, for instance, has uh, incredibly high debt levels. Now, we should be clear. Italy has high debt levels, but it doesn't actually run a budget deficit every year. It usually has been oftentimes in surplus. So this is about trying to bring down a lot of the long-term debt that European countries have. Now, what happened is that when COVID hit, the fiscal rules were suspended and countries were able to borrow to maintain their economies and debt levels went up. And then now, uh, as of January 1st, the Stability and Growth Pact was coming back. Over the course of the last year, the European Commission had proposed uh, changing the Stability and Growth Pact. So it isn't the 3% of GDP for government deficit and 60% of GDP for public debt is not some sort of hard and fast rule. Because what happens is that then if countries have to hit this, then it forces them in this austerity trap, which is what we saw uh, post-2008 um, financial crisis. And then what what did that do? It made uh, everyone's uh, situation worse and deficit situation worse, economic situation worse, as countries started to cut instead of investing. So where we are now is that the uh, commission proposed basically a tailored approach for every individual country, and uh, Germany in particular, uh, with Christian Lindner of the FDP, was leading for basically a very strict return to the Stability and Growth Pact. And the end result was a compromise that I think most economists say is better than returning to just you know the arbitrary three percent, sixty percent rule, but is also also um, probably too aggressive in some, some respects and not tailored enough to individual countries. And so I think the bottom line here is it does show that the EU could still come together, compromise, make a, a big deal. And this was a deal basically, I think, done between Germany and France uh, and then everyone else sort of signed up to so that you can still get things done at, at kind of a high level. But this looks like a situation where no one is going to be quite happy and I think for from an American perspective, I think the danger is that Europe is shifting to focus more on austerity now on on budget on on rebalancing its budgets as opposed to investing in defense. And so I think defense spending in the coming years could be could be quite squeezed.
1: Definitely, but sort of on the other hand I also I also view this as sort of a compromise at the center of of what makes the European Union work, right? I mean, the fact that you were able to get the Frugals and the Southern Europeans on the same page and actually get a deal together. I think if you'd asked us, you know, a month before Christmas mm-hmm. whether this was going to happen and we had Federico Steinberg, you know, non-resident with our program on, I think there was a lot of pessimism that this was actually going to happen in the end. And a lot of people have sort of commented on this deal as it having something in it for everyone. And I think Even though it's not sort of from our perspective in D.C. exactly what we were looking for, I think it is a really fruitful marginal uh, improvement on the status quo. So if you look at some of some of the contents on this deal, you know, basically, the new rules provide more time to cut public debt and creates incentives for public investment, even as countries sort of consolidate their budgets. And, for example, the new rules give special treatment to defense spending and investments that transition countries away from fossil fuels. I think when you look at it from a country like Germany, for example, the new rules set minimum amounts of average deficit and debt reduction that a government must observe. That's definitely, you know, a benefit to to someone from from Christian Lindner's camp. But on the other hand, you know, the new rules also more lenient. Uh, if you look at it from the perspective of a country like Italy, for example, where the old rules demanded that a country like Italy would cut its debt every year by a 20th of the excess over the 60% of GDP limit, that would have amounted to 4% of GDP for Rome. But the new rules call for only a minimum of 1% of GDP in annual debt reductions on average. So I think this is actually a quite pragmatic and sort of beneficial uh, deal for for a lot of countries involved, even if it's not exactly what we were looking for when it comes to accelerating defense spending, uh, investments in, in the green transition, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's something that we in the United States, as we're running now very high deficits, tend to not focus so much on fiscal consolidation. Neither of our two parties here are very focused on it anymore. And so, you know, It's important to not have runaway deficits and Italy getting its deficit under control is is quite important. And I do think you're right that this points to a degree of compromise. I guess, you know, as we sort of maybe shift to sort of reflect on what 2024 holds, I think the EU is at a bit of a pivot point where a lot of the momentum of the past two years after the war in Ukraine had really prompted, I I think, put the EU in a position where suddenly Ursula von der Leyen's rhetoric of the EU becoming a geopolitical actor was just, you know, it had to become that. Whether it was uh, sanctions against Russia, whether it was providing uh, military aid to Ukraine, whether it was training Ukrainian forces, whether it was adopting a stronger approach toward China or a more cohesive European approach toward China. But I think when it comes right now, the big question here with the Stability and Growth Pact, is okay, so you've agreed on new rules, but one of the clear problems is that if you've all tied yourself together, but there's no federal force that can sort of pump money into the economy the way that the US can, then you have a, you're gonna have a problem the next time there's a, a, a big economic shock. And the EU responded to COVID by creating the next generation EU, the $800 billion fund, which is largely investing in Southern Europe, and so they've borrowed for the first time. But there's probably a need if countries are going to really you know take deficit cutting seriously, then there's going to be a need for the EU to start providing European public goods. And that's going to require funding, you know, whether it's on defense, whether it's on energy and climate. And I think there's a big question of whether over the next year, the EU begins to grapple with that question. And this isn't just, you know, me saying this, there's the head of the Dutch Central Bank, a a frugal country has sort of called for this as well. Economists are starting to really recognize that there needs to be um, an EU fiscal capacity. But the question is, now that these rules are agreed, is the EU going to step forward and and think about expanding its fiscal the eu's fiscal powers and that's where i don't see christian Lindner or or the frugals really coming to grips with with what is needed
1: yeah absolutely and i think i think just to sort of tie a bow on on that point i think another good mark for for the way that this discussion has turned in the last over the last decade is all the press attention that was given to this race to become the new head of the European Investment Bank if i'd asked you 5 or 10 years ago whether you know we would care in dc about who becomes the next head of the european investment bank or whether a high profile commissioner like Margrethe Vestea would put you know put her position as you know one of the most influential commissioners in in brussels on the line to become the head of this uh, otherwise pretty insignificant uh, institution I think it signifies that Brussels insiders also understand that, you know, some of these institutions will become more powerful in the in the years to come, in this case, through the European Investment Bank, which Nadia Calvino will now head.
0: That, I think that's a, a great point. Maybe one final point before we turn to uh, my interview with Jim Townsend is that if we sort of look ahead and we have a European parliamentary elections coming up in June, I think there's a lot of concern about... The rise of the far right and whether that will sort of upend uh, the path towards further European integration. I think it's a big question right now. When I look at European politics, and we've talked about this sort of frequently on the show, I don't quite see any clear trends. You you know, for every. Dutch election, you have a Polish election. You know, Spain is an example of both the rise of the far right and then quickly declines when Sanchez actually holds a general election. I think it's very murky what the European parliamentary election portends. Uh, But, you know, the danger, I think, for the EU is it has a lot of momentum built up. There's a lot that needs to be done, but it could enter a period of political stasis. And Hungary is right now causing uh, that to some degree. If Wilders uh, in the Netherlands becomes the prime minister, then you have another person that is, you know, holding up the stop sign on all sorts of issues. And it's not going to, you know, destroy the EU, but it will essentially prevent the EU from doing big things uh, and doing new things, which. If there's a crisis, and there's always a crisis, and that's how the EU sort of moves forward on the path of integration, the EU could be looking at a number of years where it's in a bit of a stasis. And this has happened in the past. It doesn't mean that European integration is dead, but what it could mean in the coming year is that getting things done uh, at the EU level becomes increasingly hard. One final point is that, you know, I think we're waiting to see how the EU is going to respond to Hungary's blocking funding for Ukraine. And that is something that they're all working on. It currently looks like they're going to try to just get together as 26 countries, leaving Hungary aside to provide funding for Ukraine. I think a big thing is also, you know, obviously the U.S. election here, but more directly is whether the U.S. Congress actually provides funding for Ukraine. And I think if they don't, that will provide a big shock in Europe and may put a lot of pressure uh, on the new Belgian presidency of the European Union to say, how can the EU step up to potentially mitigate the fallout of the U.S. stepping away.
1: And with that, I think that's a, that's a good point to, uh, to transition to your conversation, Max, with Jim Townsend.
0: Today, we are delighted to have Jim Townsend, an adjunct senior fellow in the CNS or the Center for New American Security Transatlantic Security Program. Jim has been a longtime voice and expert on all things European security. He's also the co-host of the outstanding podcast, Brussels Sprouts, with Andrea Kendall-Taylor, an arch rival to, to the Eurofile podcast, Before joining uh, the Center for New American Security, Jim spent eight years as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy. Uh, He completed more than two decades of work on European and NATO policy in the Pentagon at NATO and at the Atlantic Council. Jim, it is great to be with you to sort of talk about all things uh, European security, particularly as we transition into the new year and look ahead to the seventy fifth anniversary of, of NATO at a, a Washington summit here in July. Thanks for thanks for being with us.
2: It's an honor to be here and it's great to be on this very popular podcast. So <laughs> thanks for asking.
0: So Jim, we have a, a summit coming up um it's, I guess, roughly seven, eight months away. Uh, you've been in this position countless times before. What, what is happening right now in the U.S. government? Uh, and and where are we right now in the kind of thinking, planning stages for what, you know, is, is a fairly significant birthday for NATO? Well,
2: it really is. And it's amazing to watch how these summits come together, particularly if you're hosting it. And I You know, we hosted the 50th anniversary in Washington, and I was part of that as a young action officer. And we shut down half of the city in order to have the 50th. And it took place in the auditorium at the Commerce Department because that was the original place for the signature of the North Atlantic Treaty. And so it was an event that impacted the entire city. Uh, The government gave people off for the day or two. We took over lots of buildings downtown for temporary offices for all the delegations. It was real happening. And so the the NATO alliance is bigger now. Back then, it was, we added, that was when we added the first three new members of the alliance Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic. Now, of course, we have many, many new members. I'm hoping we're going to add. Sweden as well at that summit, if not before. So my understanding is that they're going to rent the convention center here, which is too bad because I remember the Chicago summit. It was also in a convention center. It can be rather sterile. Not saying that the Washington Convention Center is sterile, but but uh this is gonna be <laughs> you not see as City government yet. stay off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <that's> <laughs> yeah I really yeah, so as they get closer to the summit taking place, the organizers it, it goes wild. We're not there yet. We're still uh, NATO uh, is is the center of gravity for organizing the summit. I understand from friends at the U.S. Mission NATO that every part of the government seems to have a liaison on this on the summit or a representative on the summit. You can imagine the Secret Service and all the various security and intel. Agencies have people now beginning to understand they've got a big job coming up in July, but it really won't be until about a month out when things are going to go crazy. And I'm just very glad that I won't be part of that. <laughs> yes, I'm, I, I am hopeful, though, that there's like for CSIS and for CNAS and other think tanks, particularly from Europe, that there'll be side events that'll take place where... We'll all have our own roundtables and uh, speeches talking about the summit and the summit issues. And periodically, the summiteers cross through, cross the line from the summit itself to the side events, and they'll make an appearance and bask in the glory of of a summit. But right now, Center of Gravity is in Brussels at NATO headquarters, and they just had a foreign ministers meeting a few weeks ago to hammer out some of the policy decisions and get in train some of the policy documents that will have to be agreed in July. There'll be some communique and statements and and that kind of thing. And they're having to deal with the issues of the day. And I can tell you, and uh, Max, I know you've been seeing a lot of delegations over the past week or so. They're getting an earful from a lot of us think tankers about <laughs> problems in July that they'd better be ready for. And I'm sure. You guys uh, had a lot of wisdom to provide, and I bet we probably said about the same thing.
0: So let me maybe turn to substantively what you think the goal for the summit should be. I mean, it's clear that I think the White House, uh, President Biden, uh, will want the summit to be a big birthday party for NATO, have NATO leaders sort of applaud America's return to Europe, so to speak. The summit is going to come three days before the Republican National Convention. So it's going to come at an incredibly political time here in the United States. So I'm curious, A, how you think the politics will play into the broader substance of the summit and whether that will create pressure to perhaps have – Bigger deliverables than perhaps could be expected. Or what, what is your kind of expectation right now for the summit? And and, and then maybe we can we could break it down and go into, into the weeds on some of these.
2: Well, you know, you use the word deliverables. And for those on the podcast who don't know what that means, that's Washington speak for big programs and big initiatives and big packages wrapped up in wrapping paper that will be delivered at the summit. You know, these deliverables, that's the one of the first shouts that goes out of my, within the bureaucracy is, "What are going to? What will the deliverables be?" And and off we scurry in the bureaucracy to come up with what are the big events? What are going to be the big decisions and the big gifts, particularly from the United States, that we will distribute and really make this a great successful summit. And so that's what's going on right now. And in fact, I'm sure beginning after the Vilnius summit where some of those deliverables, I bet they wanted to wait till the Washington summit to deliver, but they had to deliver them back then. And so I'm sure of the bureaucracy, both in Washington and in some of the other allied capitals, as well as in Brussels, they've been trying to look at these deliverables, try to come up with them and see what is doable. What will the market bear at NATO in terms of decisions made? And a lot of times it's, these deliverables will dictate how successful the summit is. Because those deliverables are what will be announced publicly, and the news media will pick up on those. And if there's not a lot of deliverables, or if the deliverables are a lot of inside baseball things, like we're going to give Ukraine a brand new committee within NATO, you know, those things don't go over well, real well. And then pretty soon, it's looked on as not a successful summit. So I would say that the top deliverables that they're working on now is, number one, how can we make sure... That the public and particularly Ukraine and Russia, they see that the alliance is unified and its support for Ukraine in the long term. That we're not getting wobbly. That we're not beginning to fret that things have slowed down. The Russians are winning. The alliance has got to dispel that. And Max, I, you know, we've been together in a lot of roundtables and things over the past couple of weeks, and and there's a lot of hand wringing going on. And NATO has got to dispel that and say. We're in it for the long haul. We're going to provide the assistance for the long haul, and uh, we're unified. And so that family picture that they take of all the heads of state and government—that's going to have to have some real substance behind it to show everyone, particularly Putin, that that we're in it for the long term. So that's to me that's number one. The second deliverable, and I and I know the summiters are beginning to work on this, and I know the, the U.S. government's very nervous about this, and that is what do we do about Ukraine. What's the deliverable for Ukraine? After Vilnius, you know, they said, okay, don't worry about MAP. You don't have to go through the membership action plan. And we're going to give you this new committee. And we're going to lay out all the things you need to do. And they had the first meeting of that new committee a couple weeks ago at that foreign minister's meeting. they laid out a roadmap and all this. So what in July? I think there's going to be a lot of expectations in the public that maybe that'll be a big jump down the road for Ukraine membership in NATO in July. And I'm not so sure either Washington or some of the other allied capitals want to go that far. And so to me, I think the alliance is going to, they're not going to bestow membership. That, that's not how it works. And, and they wouldn't do that in July anyway. But they're going to have to show something that gives heart to Ukraine and gives a message to Moscow as well. they're heading to nato they're down the road they've made great progress and it's coming soon they're gonna have to say something and it's got to be credible and that's part of the problem is that uh, all of us on the outside will listen to what the alliance says in july and if we don't say yeah boy that sounds pretty good then the message will kind of be on the outside oh boy this this is like vilnius it was a bit of a flat tire for ukraine membership in nato so so that's going to be, I would say, the number two deliverable. They've got to come up with something for July, for Ukraine, that's credible and that shows Ukraine is making progress.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. I I mean, I'm skeptical that they will. And I think one big difference could be that Zelensky, you know, last time at Vilnius, I think the, the hopes uh, were built up by Zelensky in Ukraine and by other Eastern European members that there would be sort of real progress toward membership, and then there was a profound sense of disappointment. I think the White House engaged very late in that process, and this time they'll set expectations in the right way, and I think Ukraine will have an interest, and no matter what happens, sort of praising the support that's come. But it leads to the bigger question, Jim, and that's what's roiling Washington right now, is anything we do on Ukraine. At the NATO summit, it's going to be incredibly disappointing if we don't keep providing the security assistance that we're providing. And so I guess we sort of will know, it seems like, if we'll have a successful summit, if Congress this month or perhaps early next month finally pass uh, Ukraine security assistance.
2: You're absolutely right. That's what the what those Republican extremists are doing in the House is they are also setting the mood. You know, they're setting the atmosphere for the July summit because if we're not successful or if it is tortuous to get something on the floor and they reduce the amount or they put on some heavy strings, there's some kind of compromise that involves some strings attached. If there are some things that show that, you know, don't bet on another one. If that's kind of the message from this process over the next couple of weeks, that will be very prominent in July and the president will be asked about this and the SecGen as well. Uh, What about the Americans? They've, They've provided some assistance, but they're saying this is it. We have a presidential election right around the corner with one of the candidates, the Republican candidates, who is no friend to NATO and no friend to Europe, and probably not Ukraine either. And so there will be a lot of anxiety and angst about the U.S. role, the U.S. assistance package, what a next one could look like. And frankly, too, and I don't think I've heard enough talk about this, what the battlefield will look like in july is going to have a big you know big thing too because we know that the russians are recapitalizing right now on their forces they have a bit of an offensive still going on they're producing a lot of armor and shells and things like that they're they're not in the bad state that they were this time last year and so by july will we see that the russians have made some significant gains will we see the Ukraine offensive. Maybe they've had a breakthrough in the south, and and maybe they're doing well. We're going to be influenced quite a bit by where we are on the battlefield. If it's still a stalemate, and there's still more and more of this talk about well, we're going to have to have negotiations. Uh, Ukraine's going to have to compromise somewhere. Then this July summit is going to be very sad. And I think the final point, by the way, Max, that along with what you were saying, certainly the Republicans are going to and the Russians are going to be making hay. In July, about problems that might come seeping out of this summit, whether it's whether Ukraine in terms of membership or whether the Citizens package or battlefield or whatever else might be causing anxiety in July, certainly the Republicans will highlight that and say, you see, Joe Biden, your plans aren't working. And the Russians will stir that pot, too. So I think July, we're all going to be holding our breath.
0: Maybe to shift gears a little bit I mean, it it strikes me that Some of the deliverables seem fairly technocratic That, you know, NATO in 2022 So in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine They were also due to release a new strategic concept They did that, which sort of Signaled the return to to focus on Russia and conventional warfare as opposed to these sort of of out-of-area stability operations that NATO had been really conducting over the last two decades. And then Vilnius was the NATO defense planners, created regional plans. So now there's new plans for NATO countries to for NATO to to deliver on and for countries to hit new targets. And it seems like this summit is supposed to be, well, we're making progress toward those goals. And it makes sense in terms of a process, but in terms of, uh, of the need for a big bang deliverable that we're doing mildly better doesn't necessarily seem to kind of move the needle or, or create new headlines. But how do you see that? And, and also maybe if you could talk about the state of European defense, it looks like European countries are spending a lot more. I think they'll point to number of countries hitting 2%. So is that in and of itself like the big deliverable that we'll see?
2: Well, Max, you're absolutely right, and it could very well be that the good news delivered at the summit will be technical in nature, and they'll have to be able to translate that If and so the journalists and uh, the American people understand that this is good news. I guess a couple things. One is because of where we are with European security now, with the war going on in Ukraine, but also with NATO Returning in a lot of ways to a Cold War footing in terms of planning and the military posture and this type of thing, that is technocratic in nature. And what they're what they're having to do is use these summits to get NATO. You know, it's like a NATO, like a big oil tanker. These summits are attempts by the heads of state and government to grab that steering wheel, if you will, grab the helm, and make a big turn on this super tanker. And that's the problem is. Whether it's ministerials or it's summits, you know, summits are supposed to be a big celebration and this type of thing. But these days, given where we are, these summits are having to be technocratic, so so that they can make a big turn on that wheel each time and turn this super tanker into into a place that's a wartime footing rather than you know what it was in the in the past couple of decades. So. They got to, But they have to dress up those technical successes, as you were pointing out, whether it's more nations meeting the 2%, European uh, procurement, European industry, U.S.-European cooperation in terms of uh, industrial production, a lot of technical things they're going to have to dress up. <laughs> they're going to have to really explain it because there is some good news there. There are some things that are happening now that would have been deliverables, certainly for a defense ministerial. But for a summit on the 75th anniversary and right before the Republican National Convention, boy, uh, you need something that's really obvious in terms of a celebratory type of thing. So maybe there'll be some deliverables that will surprise us that are, you know, not necessarily technical, but they are, you know, maybe they'll get some Hollywood stars to come in and (laughs) get up on stage. And then, you know, Taylor Swift, you know, singing uh, (laughs) him, you know, and all this stuff. I mean, maybe they'll have, because those are deliverables, maybe they'll have something fancy like that. I know Bill Clinton in in 1999, the 50th, they had big fireworks and a big gala. Of course, we weren't invited, but all the big wigs went to this big tinted gala on the White House lawn. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing. So, you know, I guess maybe we'll have to depend on Hollywood to come in and put some jazz into what is gonna probably be pretty technical.
0: <laughs> well, our, our producer on the show, Sissy Martinez, is a big Swifty. We'll, 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 we'll task her with trying to get Taylor to come to, to, come to the NATO summit. I think there'd be, be nothing bigger than, than if she came. I think it would, it would outshadow anything. <laughs> Maybe one sort of final question You've been a longtime watcher of of NATO and, and the European Union. 25 years ago, I think this month, actually, Madeleine Albright sort of had her famous 3D speech following the, the St. Malo de- Declaration between Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac, where they announced that UK and France would support the creation of of an EU 60,000 strong rapid reaction force sort of looks very army like. And the US just a few days later says, no, we don't really want that. We don't want any duplication with NATO. How has that, you know, we're 25 years since that, that point. Do you think that concern amongst the US is still relevant? Or is it should we use this summit, as I, I will note that to self-promote that we have a, a paper coming out highlighting that should we uh, use this summit to try to turn the page on that in um, the last 25 years on that fear of duplication between EU and NATO? Because it seems like there's clear roles for, for both, both organizations within defense. But I'm curious how you see the broader EU-NATO relationship and how has that evolved over the last 25 years?
2: Well, I think that is a great question. And I'm so glad CSIS is coming out with this paper. And I've heard a little bit about it. And I think it's high time someone looked into it, did some digging and some analysis, and I'm so glad you guys did it. And I'm looking forward to that paper and a big rollout at CSIS with adequate food and beverage so that we all...
0: <laughs> you, will, you will
2: definitely be invited to. <laughs> so I think it's going to be great. And, and I, you know, it's interesting, this whole thing about no unnecessary duplication, that whole mantra dates to an issue which was live back in the early 2000s where the EU wanted to build the EU equivalent of shape in Brussels using a Belgian army camp, uh, well, Belgian army buildings that were unused in Buran. And they wanted to take those, refurbish those buildings and make it into the EU command headquarters and uh, this type of thing. And that was right at the time when there was a furious argument between Paris and Washington over where this was going. We had the so-called chocolate summit. I don't know if you remember that, but it was Belgium Belgium the Netherlands France Spain maybe some others who had a summit of those who were the most forceful in terms of this EU military capability and it was a uh, bad time bad rhetoric and the no unnecessary duplication was you're gonna you're gonna duplicate shape that's terrible you, you know this is uh it's the common pool of forces so you'll be building a headquarters that will pull planners and and uh, personnel away from shape to go over there with a eu hat on making shape less capable because those people are going to be over there and we're going to be competing for a small group of european plan i mean it was just it was terrible and so no unnecessary duplication was kind of birthed out of that and it was and so when you when at least when i think of no unnecessary duplication it's more of that kind of thing since then, it has died away a bit as a mantra. The, a lot of the storm uh, around that was personalities in Washington and personalities in Paris who were throwing mud at each other. And so that powered that. And so with, with the departure of those folks and better times between France and the United States, I which I just celebrate every day when I wake up, I celebrate. We have to look at something that might be some duplication, uh, but isn't but isn't unnecessary duplication. There might be some necessary duplication. I've always said that a rising tide raises all boats. And so if a rising EU tide can raise capability boats, both at NATO and the EU, because it's a common pool of forces, then I'm all for it. I think the problem is that we have seen the problems in that getting a rising tide. And I think what's happening in Ukraine is a forcing mechanism, particularly in the European Union, to help them develop mechanisms where they can push forward European industrial cooperation, including with U.S. industry. You know, there was a there was a conference uh, last week where U.S. and European and Ukrainian industry got together to see how they could work work out co-producing 155 millimeter ammo and these kinds of things. So, so things are moving. I think we're in a better place now politically and rhetorically for us to come up with a way to make this work. I am so sorry that Turkey and Cyprus still fight over EU-NATO cooperation at the formal high level, because we th- that's just an obstacle for us. But I do believe, and then I've heard recently, that the discussions at that staff level is much deeper in c- terms of cooperation, much more understanding of what everyone is doing. The EU has developed defense planning mechanisms similar to what NATO does. So there can be a better future for us in terms of trying to work together on filling capability gaps. And I think we just have to keep at it. So I think the CSIS paper is going to help the American side understand better our role in this, both how we can help foster it and how we can avoid getting in the way of it, because we come in there with a paranoia that we're being screwed by the Europeans or whatever it might have been in the past but that we we educate ourselves better and understand that uh, we need this to happen and it doesn't have to be at the expense of american industry or american policies of various types we can we can we can do this together and so i think we're in a better place
0: jim thank you so much and, and thanks for praising the the, the future paper yeah I, I think our basic conclusion is that there's roles that the eu can play in terms of its potential to leverage resources, fiscal capacity, and NATO doesn't do things like determine procurements for countries and and help coordinate that. That's not really a, a NATO responsibility that's left to member states, but then the EU has a role in helping member states coordinate better. So it's no longer just the EU forming an army that will duplicate you know, NATO headquarters. It's, it's trying to sort of develop the roles that the EU can play. But Jim, I want to thank you so much for, for being here, for all the work that you do on on Ukraine and, and European security. And thanks so much for, for being with us.
2: Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for asking me, and I hope I can come back again.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. A special thanks today for our producer, Michael Kohler, as this will be his last episode working on the podcast. Thank you, Michael, for everything you've done over the past year to get us off the ground. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.